Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Well, good Monday morning and, uh, well, happy Monday because there is a lot that happened since we uh, last talked. So uh, back on Friday afternoon, RNC chair uh, election saw Ronna McDaniel reelected to an unprecedented fourth term after promising the party she would not seek another two-year stint. She was voted in by a margin of 111 to 56, so soundly defeating challengers Harmeet Dillon and Mike Lindell. And the grassroots are really divided on this, with an online poll suggesting that only 44% are planning to stay registered Republican across the nation after the GOP chair election. So, you know, I've been receiving a lot of text messages from people saying that they are now registering as unaffiliated or independent. And uh, in my home state of Colorado, I am unaffiliated, which still means that I can vote in the primary election. Uh, But I don't support the current Republican Party. And so I've been very clear about that. I was very disappointed to see Ronna McDaniel um, actually win that unprecedented fourth term, especially after she had promised not to. But, you know, Lee Zeldin called this one. And the reason that he did not step in and run for chair was because he said that the outcome was already baked in. And we saw that with the RNC. And this just proves yet again that the party is really not listening to the grassroots. About 98% of people, according to some polls uh, across the Republican Party, were not in favor of Ronna McDaniel for a variety of reasons. And yet the uh, chair or committee people, uh, there are three each in each state that vote. So 168 votes total. Um, And yes, that's more than 153 per state. But that's because a couple of the U.S. territories also get committee members that get to vote um, because they, they just ended up overwhelmingly supporting her anyway and suggesting that that's because of her ability to fundraise, that they had already promised her vote among other things. Uh, So where the Republican Party goes uh, from here, that will be very interesting to uh, to see. And especially if even 10% would be shocking to me, if even 10, much less something like 44% actually decide to become unaffiliated, independent, libertarian party, who knows. So Project Veritas also released a shocking video uh, last week showing an executive who they believe to work for Pfizer divulging on a date over drinks that Pfizer is manipulating viruses uh, and having this gain of function research. So we will be covering this because it's a really, really huge revelation. And I know a lot of you are very concerned about the so-called vaccine. Um, Some of that manipulation, you have probably seen the Project Veritas video. Uh, We are going have a doctor on the program tomorrow to talk more about this. And my friend James O'Keefe will likely join us later in the week as well. So definitely stay tuned for that. Uh, But this morning, I want to focus on another story. Over the weekend, Memphis saw protests in the wake of a horrific beating and the eventual death of a 29-year-old black man at the hands of five black police officers. So body cam footage was released late Friday. And you probably saw this. It was just horrifically tragic 
to watch and I could barely watch the whole thing. And Memphis not only was on edge with protests, but uh, a lot of people who claimed uh, in Memphis that they were seeking so-called justice then went out and ransacked the city and uh, committed a lot of other acts of violence. And CNN and the mainstream media, of course, immediately went to the race card, even though this was five black police officers with a black victim. So my friend Jason Whitlock, who hosts Fearless on the Blaze, uh, said this on Tucker Carlson uh, related to the CNN uh, op-ed, and this is cut to, listen to this. And hyped this video like they were hyping the Super Bowl. And there's really only 60 seconds of relevant content. You show the police misconduct from overhead as they brutalize this man and make it clear this is an open and shut case and the guys are going to be convicted and we move on. They treated this like a Super Bowl, enraging people, promoting the violence, and this is the most important story in the history of the planet. It's not. What's going on in Ukraine and our military involvement in Ukraine that's the most important story going on in the world. So my good friend Alan West, who, uh, of course, was a former member of Congress and a former candidate for governor out of the great state of Texas, joins me this morning to discuss this story. So, uh, Colonel West, thank you so much. And I, I want to get first your reaction to uh, this story in general and also CNN's op-ed that suggests that even though all of these police officers uh, were, of course, the same race as the victim, that there's somehow an implicit undertone of white supremacy here. Well, it's good to be with you, Jenna, and good morning. Uh, the thing is that CNN and the progressive socialist left have to continue to try to put the square, square peg into the round hole, and they have to make sure that everything uh, still fits into the prism of racism, white supremacy, what have you, even though you had five uh, black police officers. This is black-on-black crime, and we see black-on-black crime happening in the, in the means of murder uh, every weekend in all of these major uh, urban population centers, but that's not what CNN and the left wants to speak about. What this video shows and what this uh, this sad, tragic event shows is that this is not about race. This is about depraved humanity uh, to, to see something like this happen, and it, it has to be corrected. And when you talk about justice, justice has happened. First and foremost, they were suspended without pay, and then they have been uh, arrested and charged with second-degree murder before this video even became public. So if anything, they should be praising the people, uh, the leadership there in Memphis, for taking the right actions. So going out and trying to stoke the uh, the fires of you know uh, violence and, and looting and things of this nature, that just shows the cultural Marxists once again doing what we always expect them to do, is to try to undermine the actual rule of law in this country. Yeah, so well said. And, you know, with the protests, it, it strikes me that when you take away any meaningful definition to justice and the process mm -hmm. and saying, OK, what what does justice actually look like here for the family? And you reimagine that as social justice, which is, of course, what the progressive left wants, then every crime is a harm and a personal injury to the entire community. So then everyone is a victim and they feel this need to then lash out and somehow go and uh, have a, a GameStop or, you know, or a, a, some game station ransacked. How is that possibly justice? Well, it's not justice. And if you want to talk about social justice, let's talk about 
the 25 million black babies who have been murdered in the womb since 1973 Roe versus Wade. Where's the justice for them? You want to talk about justice? What about the decimation of the traditional nuclear black family based upon the policies of the left that emanated from Lyndon Johnson and how that has led to just absolute detrimental second, third, and fourth order effects. You want to talk about social justice? Look at how the uh, the unions, they side with uh, the government and, and the teachers and collusion, and they undermine the success of schools and most of your urban population centers. That's where you see the failure of education. So, you know, don't give me this crap about, you know, social justice and what you really are seeking. All you're seeking is ideological uh, advantage. You're seeking ideological rights over constitutional rights. And think about those property owners. Think about those business owners who had their businesses destroyed, looted, ransacked, whatever. They had nothing to do with these five police officers. So where's the justice for them? Exactly. And I'm talking with uh, Colonel Alan West, who is uh, currently the executive director of the American Constitutional Rights Union. And you know, Colonel West, it, th- this is just so infuriating that people are taking this at this one very, very tragic situation and not only uh, infusing racist elements to it, because regardless of the race, age or any other immutable characteristic of anyone involved, the perpetrators or the victims, we know from a biblical standpoint that every human being is has inherent dignity, worth, and value mm-hmm. because we're created in the image of God. And so why we have this racist element in here, uh, to me, is just f- just stoking the flames of division <laughs> that the progressive left wants, instead of recognizing, as you very well said just a moment ago, that this is about a lack of respect for humanity. If we as a culture valued life, if we taught our young people and ultimately our, our police officers, people, um, yeah. anyone who per- perpetrates any of these crimes to value their fellow human beings, then that is uh, the cure for these types of ills, not to just say that there's somehow a white supremacist undertone to every single uh, murder that the left wants to somehow use to their own advantage. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But it goes back to what Rahm Emanuel once said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And that's what they are seeking to do. And so, you know, I knew that somehow, way, shape, form or fashion, they were going to try to introduce race to this. It's just the same as they look at black conservatives and say that we're the black face of white supremacy because they have to keep that out there because that's what cultural Marxists do. Uh, you look at the, you know, Ibrahim X. Kendi uh, writings and, and everything about certain groups of people are oppressors and the other are just oppressed. So, you know, but I think that more people are starting to wake up and say, hey, give me a break on this. This was a tragedy. Uh, these five individuals, they will, you know, get their day in court and they will, uh, of course, receive the right and proper punishment because it's, it's really indisputable with that evidence that you saw there. But again, we're going to consistently see the left, what they have to do is try to undermine the fabric of this country and go back and use racism. mean, that's why I call it cultural Marxism. Marxism originally was about socioeconomic status, but now it's about racial status. 
Right. And I'm talking with Colonel Alan West. And, you know, one last thing as well. The New York Post also uh, released a story saying that the Memphis uh, police officers that were charged in this murder were hired after the police department relaxed job requirements, which is yet another way that the left is uh, tearing down the standards uh, for these types of uh, of police operations and um, apparently there were there was a history of violence among at least one or two of these police officers and so when you look at law enforcement generally across the country in your view what needs to change in terms of how we understand uh, what law enforcement is obligated to do with their standards and uh, respect overall for police officers well, first and foremost, we don't want to see thugs in uniform, uh, and we don't want to see the standards being low. And I have the same concerns about what we see happening in the United States military in order to make recruiting goals, because the left is uh, focused not on our national security, but again, on woke policies. So your standards have to be high, because we don't want to see a new version of the brown shirts or SA walking around out there on the streets. And we've got to get back to understanding what the law really is. Uh, and as Frederick Bastiat wrote back in the 1850s, uh, this is about protecting our individual life, liberty, and property. Uh, and that's why we allow these collective security organizations, the government, the police, law enforcement to come about. But if law enforcement is not focused on the law, if law enforcement is focused on something else, uh, then we're going to continue to see these type of things. So standards have to be high. And this does come back to leadership because uh, you've got to make sure that there's a culture of respect uh, for humanity and dignity for all people. And that's something I think most important that we have to make sure is uh, permeated throughout our law enforcement agencies. Yeah, I love that you quote Bastiat. Uh, The Law is one of my favorite books. Um, I read that actually in high school, and it's such a thin volume. I commend that to everyone's reading. And uh, last question I have for you in just about the last 30 seconds I have. Uh, Mm -hmm. So President Biden also released a statement in reaction to the video that was released saying he was outraged and deeply pained. But he also added, quote, the footage that was released this evening will leave people justifiably outraged. Is he stoking the flames of division or what what is he doing from the White House? Yeah, he is absolutely doing so. It goes right back to Barack Obama and, you know, the police acted stupidly. You don't need to say about justifying outrage because you're giving people cover. What you need to say is that these individuals will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law and everyone should let the system of law play itself out. Well said. Well, Colonel Allen West, really appreciate it. Everyone should follow him on Twitter. And you have a great podcast as well. So I really appreciate your commentary today. We'll be right back with more of Jenna Ellis in the morning to talk more about the story and the issue of qualified immunity and how the law maybe needs to change. We'll be right back. In this new world, on this new day, we rejoice that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Preborn has been preparing for this moment for the past 16 years by positioning their clinics in the top six abortion states where 50% of abortions occur. Sadly, five of these six states will continue to abort babies at an even greater level. And since the abortion pill accounts for over 50% of abortions, babies are even more at risk. 
Preborn pregnancy clinics are completely dependent on you as they offer life-saving ultrasounds and the life-saving gospel to moms and babies in crisis. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. To learn how you can be a part of rescuing babies' lives and sharing the heart of Jesus, go to preborn.com or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. If you are 65 or older, you know this. Watching your hard-earned dollars fly out the window on healthcare costs is so frustrating. But here's some great news. If you miss the December 7th deadline for open enrollment, it's not too late. Here's something that can really help. It's MediShare 65+. plus. MediShare is a community of Christians who share each other's healthcare bills. It's people who encourage and pray for each other too. MediShare 65 Plus is a low-cost option for those with Medicare Parts A and B, and it fills in the gaps where Medicare stops. It's a great way to fight inflation too. You can lock in one low monthly price for up to 10 years. Plus, it's easy. You can use any Medicare-approved doctor or get 24-7 telehealth access from the comfort of your home. So worth looking into. MediShare 65 Plus is open for enrollment. And if you join right now, before January 31st, your second month will be free. So don't miss this chance. Call 833-45-BIBLE. That's 833-45-BIBLE. 833-45-BIBLE. Hello, Americans. I'm Todd Starn. Stand by for news and commentary next. Liberty University's K-12 Online Academy is the best of a homeschool, private school, and Bible-based education all rolled into one. With LUOA, you can take charge of your child's learning environment and create a structured yet flexible schedule that works for your family. Our qualified teachers are easily accessible for guidance and support along the way. And with new classes starting every Monday, it's never too late to make the switch to LUOA. To learn more, text LUOA to 88741. That's LUOA to 88741. The Colorado Court of Appeals says Christian bakers must design cakes that celebrate gender transition. The court ruled against Jack Phillips, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Denver. Mr. Phillips has become a punching bag for radical gay activists. In 2018, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Mr. Phillips in a case that involved his First Amendment rights. In that case, he had refused to create a cake celebrating a same-sex wedding. Meanwhile, a radical activist attorney called on the cake shop to make a cake that would symbolize and celebrate gender transition. The attorney later called back and demanded a cake that depicted Satan smoking the devil's lettuce. Phillips declined to make both cakes, and he was promptly sued. The court said making a pink cake with blue frosting is not inherently expressive. Elias Defending Freedom is representing Mr. Phillips. They argue Christian bakers should be allowed to practice their faith, and we should all be protected from heterophobic anti-Christian bigots. I'm Todd Starnes. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. We're talking about the, of course, uh, tragic and disturbing footage that came out Friday about a young uh, 29-year-old that was beaten to death by five police officers and the fallout in Memphis, Tennessee, as well as the overall story of uh, how CNN and other leftist media is portraying this, of course, as a racist element, even though um, the race of the perpetrators and the victim in this case is the same. But somehow everything always comes back to uh, white supremacy. But the one of the issues that is always implicit in stories involving police officers is the legal question of qualified immunity. This is a legal principle and a doctrine that grants government officials performing discretionary functions immunity 
immunity from civil suits, uh, generally speaking. And so uh, qualified immunity has uh, shielded a lot of government officials and specifically police officers from personal liability. Proponents of qualified immunity argue that without a liability shield, then police officers and law enforcement officials would be constantly sued or second-guessed in courts. But of course, then uh, advocates for reform of qualified immunity, which, um, by the way, I don't believe has any basis in actual uh, legislative action. Um, this is more of a doctrine that has evolved from the courts, which of course can't legislate. Um, And so advocates of reform of this system would say that when there is clear uh, evidence that shows that a police officer, even though they may have been acting under color of law, went and perpetrated a crime, then of course they should not have immunity simply because they were on the job as a police officer. So to break this down further, I'm so excited to welcome my good friend Brett Tolman, who is the executive director of Right on Crime, a former U.S. attorney and an all-around brilliant person. We are on Newsmax panels together all the time, and I personally think those are the best legal panels. (laughs) We're the legal eagles. So Brett, thank you so much for joining me today. And um, first, your take overall on this video and the media coverage. Hi, Jenna. Thanks for having me on. Um, I apologize. I'm getting over a cold, so I sound a bit uh, like a frog currently, <laughs> but um, we'll, we'll get through this. Um, well, thanks for joining anyway. Exact- yep, absolutely. I, I think you're exactly right on framing this. Um, we have this, this tension between the need to allow police officers the, you know, the confidence that they can, they can perform their jobs without being at risk of always being sued. Um, but at the same time, the law has allowed qualified immunity to so expand that we are now getting absurd results. Like um, there's a case that uh, pretty famous case that I think came out of the Northeast, uh, I think Wisconsin or Minnesota, where a police officer used deadly force. And the, the um, justification was that he smelled marijuana and that marijuana uh, even though, he, you know, it doesn't make you or I afraid for our lives, he he argued that it did make him afraid when he smelled marijuana, and so he was justified in using deadly force. Now, that you and I look at that and we go, that just can't be. Well, the reason it can be is because qualified immunity says what what did this officer, what did he believe, and what was his subjective reaction to what he was experiencing? Um, so the, the expansion of qualified immunity is leading to absurd results that we can't hold police officers accountable, and we absolutely need to be able to hold them accountable. Yeah, and so you know, some of the the objections maybe would say, well, okay, these police officers have uh, lost their jobs and they are being held accountable because they have been uh, charged with attempted murder or um, or second degree murder. Actually, I think it was. Um, and so, isn't that enough accountability? Why should we then revisit the qualified immunity standard? Yeah, and that argument really applies in this case, but. The unfortunate circumstances are that most often police officers are not charged, um, even when the conduct can be really egregious and outrageous. And so if they're not charged, what what happens is that the victims of the, the police behavior have to file suit or they try to and they lose. And when they lose, you know, the police officer may get fired, but more often than not, 
they will resign so that there's not a finding of misconduct by the police department that they're in. And then they they re-enlist in another police department. Um, it's a loophole that's been created by not just the expansion of qualified immunity, but many of the uh, police organizations have, you know, for years been able to negotiate this type of a resolution. And it's leading to bad police officers moving to more and more police departments instead of being found um, either guilty of a crime or found um, that they have conducted themselves inappropriately. Or And so what we have is the public rightfully sort of outraged when we see circumstances where we, we ask ourselves, why are police officers, you know, able to get away with, with things like this? And I'm talking with uh, Brett Tolman, who's the executive director of Right on Crime and a former U.S. attorney. And so you know, there, there was a Cato uh, piece, and, and I actually appreciate um, Cato for a lot of its research that talks about qualified immunity. And the title is uh, Qualified Immunity, a Legal, Practical, and Moral Failure. And uh, this was published September 14th of 2020. I would commend that uh, to everyone's reading if you want to go a little more in depth on the history of this issue. But um, this article suggests that accountability is an absolute necessity for meaningful criminal justice reform. And so from the perspective of uh, Right on Crime, which that's exactly what your organization focuses on, which is criminal justice reform, and looking at um, the broader picture of how a lot of these protests, uh, while they are really just... um, ignoring meaningful justice in favor of social justice, there is an element to this that requires accountability for when uh, officers do violate the law and they do perpetrate a harm and a crime on an individual that um, in any other context, if they weren't a police officer, would be prosecuted. And the standard uh, or the and the judicial doctrine, which was basically invented by the Supreme Court in the 1960s, uh, says that state and local officials from uh, protect, are protected from liability even when they act unlawfully, as long as their actions do not violate, quote, clearly established law. And that standard has been so vague and manipulated that people, I think, are justifiably frustrated, as you've been mentioning, Brett Tolman. And so what can be done in terms of meaningful criminal justice reform and defining what justice is in this context? Yeah, it's a great point that you make. It, it reminds me that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, for years, has asserted that qualified immunity uh, needs to be struck down, that it was a creation, as you mentioned, by the Supreme Court. It was created out of whole cloth. His argument is that it was the development of of an idea into law without the legislature ever having enacted it. And, And so if you start at that point, you have to ask yourselves, well, what what sort of changes can you make, um, you know, until the Supreme Court does finally decide it and decides whether or not it is going to be law going forward? Can there can there be changes made to it? And the reality is yes. And both uh, conservatives and you know progressives, the left and the right, have both um, argued that there should be some meaningful changes to qualified immunity. Um, first, the standard has gotten to the point where. We there's really 
no behavior by police officers that can't be argued that falls within qualified immunity. Um, you know, there was a case here in Utah, for example, um, an individual with mental issues uh, walking down the street with a samurai sword. Um, police were called. The individual ran away, and the police shot him in the back. It was a case that really highlighted, um, as the officers, you know, as the case was reviewed, the initial finding was that the officers acted reasonable. But the entire community, a very conservative community, said, how does somebody that's running away, you know, um, not threatening anyone, but running away from police, how does that justify the, the use of deadly force? And so it became a discussion about can you can you hold them accountable? But even before we ask that question, what the community has really been screaming for is transparency. What they really, really want is to be able to see, you know, what what is going on behind the scenes, both in the training of police officers and in the discussions of their conduct and in the investigations afterwards. And if we could add more transparency to this and we can rein in qualified immunity, I think you start to have communities that say, okay, we are going to hold our police officers to a very high standard and they will be held accountable if they don't live up to that standard. And, and you raise a really good point, uh, Brett Tolman, that, that criminal justice reform is one of possibly the only issues uh, to date that actually has has uh, bipartisan support. And, of course, what we mean by criminal justice reform and how uh, what we even mean by the definition of justice, of course, is, is debatable. But um, but it's not just a Republican versus Democrat issue, and it's not something that is um, so politically charged as much as CNN would like us to believe that um, that this type of reform wouldn't be possible in this current political climate. And so, as you mentioned, um, that there is an opportunity for legislative reform. Um, how would that look when it gets to, um, in your view, and of course, you know, this is just uh, conjecture, but getting to the courts when this is such a deeply rooted doctrine that uh, maybe the court system would have a really difficult time overturning their own doctrine in the wake of, uh, of legislation that clearly says we don't want to have this kind of unfettered immunity. Yeah, I, I'm really glad that you highlighted that because what the, what the legislature needs to do and Ironically, Senator Tim Scott had a bill that would have made some amendments to qualified immunity, which were, um, you know, 20 years ago were embraced by Democrats. But because of the politics, uh, they, they, they were, you know, they went so far left. They went to the defund police mentality and uh, refused to, to join with, with Senator Scott on his bill. It's on substance. It's, it's not actually that difficult. If you raise the standard so that police officers currently, it's, it's, it really boils down to what did that subjective officer think and, and, and were his actions consistent with that subjective belief about what was going on. If you raise the standard to a reasonable person and an objective person in that circumstances, um, even just that change alone would eliminate you know, many of the absurd cases that we see where we can't hold them accountable. And then you could do other things such as if 
you can limit the amount that could be recovered in a civil lawsuit against a police officer and instead make it that the police department itself or the city, um, for example, would be liable if they found that the police officer had violated um, you know, that, that new standard. So there, there's within reach very reasonable changes that could be made uh, that would change the landscape in holding police officers accountable and, and in allowing transparency for the public. Um, you're right about criminal justice reform. It's the last remaining area where both the left and the right can work together. But the left has to come back to a more centered position because they went so far afield with with Black Lives Matter and with defund the police and with tearing down and and the entire criminal justice system. Those of us on the right say, hey, we need a criminal justice system. There are really bad people out there that need to be in prison, and the community has to feel like they're going to be safe. And until the left decides to come back to the center and, and meet on the substance and not just follow the emotional politics of the day, you know, it'll, we won't be able to get something changed until they do that. I'm talking with Brett Tolman, who's the executive director of Right on Crime, which is really excellent work, um, especially in uh, the lane of uh, legislation on all kinds of issues surrounding criminal justice reform. And uh, you're a former U.S. attorney as well. And um, and most importantly, one of my good friends who um, I always I always love your legal perspectives and I always learn a lot from them as well. And I think you you highlight a really important point as well, that accountability um, isn't just for people who uh, perpetrate crimes, but also we need to, if we're asking in any way, shape, or form to hold our government accountable, whether it's members of Congress, it's the judiciary, it's anyone in government, that also has to include our police officers. But we can restrain that as well so that there aren't these kind of outlandish suits that people are just frustrated that they got caught in the crime or that they were prosecuted by the state. But it also reminds me of um, of a lot of where um, malicious prosecutions are going, where we've seen uh, the the executive branch just so weaponized politically. And then you think, well, I, there's no real way to hold accountable prosecutors who are perpetrating these prosecutions that are so political in nature. I mean, you, you look at Letitia James, uh, the, the attorney general of New York, going after a former President Trump that is clearly politically motivated, and yet nothing happens, right? And so this isn't just a matter of the far left saying, well, we don't like police officers and we want to uh, tear down, you know, kind of defund the police, all law enforcement and all of that. It's, it's really the broader scope of saying, how do we hold accountable the people in government who rightly do need to police? We rightly do need to enforce our law, but we have to make sure to hold them accountable as well. So we're taking a break here, but um, I'm going to hold Brett Tolman into the next segment. We're talking about criminal justice reform in the context of Memphis. You're listening to Jenna Ellis in the morning. We'll be right back right here on American Family Radio. This week on Truth For Life, join Alistair Begg as he turns to the pages of Scripture to answer long-standing debates about baptism. You'll also learn how to witness by the way you worship and discover what effective church leadership looks like. Listen to Truth For Life with Alistair Begg. 
Truth For Life, weekday mornings at 1130 Central on AFR and online at AFR.net. You couldn't say anything challenging Dr. Fauci or you were spreading disinformation. But I mean, you can look up Bigfoot right now. Is Facebook going to come in or is uh, YouTube going to come in and say this is misinformation? No, they don't do that. They only do that against conservative ideology on politics or government or culture. Or if you disagree with Dr. Fauci. Today's issues, weekday mornings at 11 Eastern, 10 Central on American Family Radio. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. My name is Abraham Hamilton III, and this is the Hamilton Minute. I will represent the American Family Association this Wednesday at the Museum of the Bible during the National Gathering of Prayer and Repentance, where I will join Tony Perkins, Ann Graham Lotz, Pastor Jim Garlow, Congressman Mike Johnson, and many other pastors and ministry leaders and elected officials as we cry out to the Lord in repentance for our nation. Repentance is our most desperate national need. You can watch the prayer meeting Wednesday morning, February 1st at 7.30 a.m. Central at PrayDC.org. That's PrayDC.org. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner or visit the podcast page at AFR.net for more from Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. Director of the AFA Foundation, Riley Wildman. Here in the Foundation, we help families just like yours to shore up permanent income for their retirement years through our charitable gift annuities. Riley has served as the Director of the AFA Foundation for over a decade. A charitable gift annuity is a gift to American Family Association. Not only are you giving to the Lord's work, but you'll receive a lifetime income and excellent tax benefits. Contact the AFA Foundation today to learn how you can shore up permanent income for your retirement years while supporting the culture-transforming work of the American Family Association. A charitable gift annuity benefits you and helps ensure the AFA will impact America for generations to come. Give us a call today at 800-326-4543. That's 800-326-4543, extension 345. The AFA Foundation, the Financial Stewardship Division of the American Family Association. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And uh, we're having a great conversation this morning with my good friend, Brett Tolman, who is the executive director of Right on Crime and a former uh, U.S. attorney about this concept of criminal justice reform, and but also the broader picture, I think, of the definition of justice versus social justice. So, Brett Tolman, in the last few minutes I have with you, um, and, and if anyone missed the last segment, definitely go to AFR.net. You can listen to the entirety of this show in podcast form there under uh, the banner for Jenna Ellis in the morning. Um, but let's let's talk more broadly about the difference in the right and left's perspective of what justice genuinely means in the context of criminal justice reform. Because um, in my experience as, as a former prosecutor and defense attorney um, in court, there was so much emphasis from 
the leftist uh, liberals on rehabilitation and, you know, not really punishment uh, for crimes. But then you have this uh, kind of, I think, overemphasis from the conservative right that uh, say, well, we need to punish everyone to the fullest extent of the law. And you have this kind of marked divide about what justice actually means in the context of criminal law. So um, what's your view on that? And how should we look at that through a a moral and constitutional lens. Yeah, thanks, Jenna. And it's great to be on with you. I think you're one of the few voices that, that truly understands that the criminal justice system has largely been able to operate with no transparency and little accountability for decades. Um, and in fact, you talked about the weaponization of it. We're, we're witnessing right now um, startling decision-making by prosecutors by the Department of Justice, by the FBI. And look, this is also happening in our states at the state and local level. Um, when you give power and you give the ultimate power, which is to take away the liberty of life of another human being, when you give that power, it should actually come with more accountability, not less. But what we, we have allowed to happen in this country is for our law enforcement and for the criminal justice system to basically grow and continue to grow and consume more and more power without holding them accountable for that power. And both sides are responsible for it. Um, you know, the left right now wants to suggest that it's uh, only the right that's been the problem that has allowed this, you know, unfettered power to grow. And that's just not true. Clinton and Biden passed sweeping criminal justice uh, legislation that that turned out to be, um, you know, incredibly punitive and gave outrageous power to to um, the the prosecutors and to law enforcement. And then both sides have continued to do that in sort of a one-upmanship game that they play to show that they're tough on crime. And we're hearing it right now as we see crime rates rise. Then we see the far right saying, you know, we, we just need to put them in prison and, and throw, throw away the key. Um, and then the left is always emotional driven. And they see, you know, a situation that comes up and their decision is to, like in New York, they see that bail is a, a problem for those that have very, very little resources. Well, the answer is not to just do away with bail altogether and, and let everybody out. The answer is to use best practices and to look at what some states have done as they've reformed some of these aspects of the criminal justice system and then study and see what works and then replicate that across the country. Um, and, and then you start to develop policies that are born out of success and results rather than just the raw emotion of, of the you know, particular case of the day. That is such a great point. And I'm talking with Brett Tolman, who is the executive director of Right on Crime, that so much of this, um, especially from the left, but even even on the right as well, is more emotionally driven than what makes sense in terms of best practices and uh, in terms of an objective administration of the law. And, um, you know, one of uh, my favorite people in Colorado who uh, was a former prosecutor, then uh, was a defense attorney and then actually ran for a district attorney in Denver, um, used to say in his entire campaign was built on the um, the campaign slogan, but I but I think he genuinely believed it was that we need to not just be tough on crime, but smart 
on crime. And that element, I think, has really been lost when you look at how people approach criminal justice reform, and it is so deeply personal. So um, in just the last um, two minutes or so that I have with you, uh, Brett Tolman, and then we're going to open the phone line. So if you want to call in and um, opine or have a question on this topic, the phone number here is 888-589-8840. That's 888-589-8840. But how can people get involved in criminal justice reform? And where is Right on Crime uh, headed with this um, national and also state level perspective? Because I know that you guys are doing a lot of really, really important work there. Thanks, Jenna. Yeah, it's um, it's something that if I like to say that the criminal justice system doesn't really matter to someone um, until they find themselves in the criminal justice system or someone close to them in the criminal justice system. And right now, one in three Americans have uh, a criminal record. We are a nation that has, you know, been very punitive and we've believed that we can stop crime um, by prosecuting our way out of it. And the reality is that's not the case. We saw that the lengthened drug sentences during the drug, you know, the war on drugs, uh, an absolute failure by our country um, as we see fentanyl and we see everything else happening in this country. So in order to fix the criminal justice system, we have to do exactly as you outlined, and that is piece by piece implement a system that is based upon success, best practices, data, and and research. And it's not that complicated. You take the bail issue that I raised, for example. In Texas, they said, we're not going to be like New York and just let everybody out. Instead, what they did is they said on these low-level you know, individuals that can't afford their bail, we're going to give them relief. But we're also going to expand the judge's ability to look at an individual and assess whether or not they're a threat to the community. And if they are, we're going to empower the judges to actually be able to hold them um, in custody. That way we don't get the, you know, cases like the, the Waukesha uh, parade uh, homicide. And we don't get other cases where you have individuals that are dangerous, but we've emotionally implemented policy. So we, we, we let them out. Um, if you can do that and have a balanced approach to, to every aspect of the criminal justice system, we can start to drive crime rates down, and, and, and that's being tough on crime. But if you're just going to lengthen the sentence of one particular criminal, you're not reducing crime. And in fact, you're not reducing recidivism either as deterrence is really just a, it's a non-existent um, when it comes to the length of a sentence. That's not what deters a criminal. What deters a criminal is the certainty that they're going to get caught and the certainty that they will be prosecuted. Hmm, So well said. Well, Brett Tolman, um, I hope that you feel better. And thank you so much for joining me today, even in the midst of, um, you know, sounding a little raw, but I thought you sounded great. And your commentary was fantastic. So um, you can follow Brett Tolman on social media. Also go to rightoncrime.com. And so I want to open the phone lines now. And if you want to call in 888-589-8840. And we're talking about the broader context of criminal justice reform, uh, qualified immunity. And, um, you know, Brett made a 
really excellent point about uh, judicial discretion as well, because so often the policies that we have in place, and I saw this uh, in the court system in my home state of Colorado when I was practicing more full time, that so much of this is just left up to uh, the district attorney in terms of um, bail recommendations that really judges don't have a lot of discretion anymore, even um, in terms of sentencing structures, um, in terms of the mandatory minimums or mandatory maximums and some of these things. So it takes away a lot of the discretion and ultimately you can't look at the facts objectively or even in context and truly have, in my view, meaningful justice when in the context of the criminal justice system when everything is uh, viewed through the exact same lens. When you have, well, here's the you know one-size-fits-all uh, crime that you are prosecuting because the facts kind of fit into just a couple of, uh, you know, handful of different charges. And then you have um, these statutes that mandate and regulate so much of this and take away discretion. So let's go first to uh, Dave in Tennessee. Um, Dave, uh, my my notes are saying that uh, you are a law enforcement officer and uh, have an opinion on crime in Memphis. So uh, welcome to Jenna Ellis in the morning. Thank you, Jenna. Uh, I am what they call a a constable, which is an elected law enforcement position. And the comment I want to make about things in general is this. First of all, the film footage that people are seeing about Memphis, you need to look at all of the film footage. I'm not justifying anything that those officers did. But if anyone has ever dealt with a person that is high on drugs, they become superhuman. Uh, you, it's very, very difficult to constrain them. So I think you need to look at everything. Secondly, the thing I worry about with all this is there is a continual push to nationalize our police forces. And one of the ways that's being done is with local law enforcement agencies taking federal money. And when the federal government gets involved in things, it messes up the ability of local law enforcement to actually do what is right. Um, And I'm fearful this is where the right's going to take us if we're not careful. Um, Also, I would say as far as criminal reform, uh, up until 1973, I think the state of Delaware still practiced corporal punishment. Uh, That is very effective. Just think about families and raising children. And it also is a low cost to the state and can be done quite humanely as well. So those are my comments, and I'll just leave it at that. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for calling in. Those are some excellent points, and I really appreciate uh, your service so much. And and I think you're right in in, um, everything that you describe and uh, obviously taking everything in context and having a more nuanced approach to, uh, to this footage and watching and not just taking uh, the mainstream media's view and not being willing uh, to look at what's going on and especially your comment about uh, federal money and taking that. It's always strings attached. I mean, whether that's in our education uh, budgets of states, whether that's anything else, when states in any way take federal dollars, there are always strings attached and it over-federalizes. And that's where Congress even, and really good Republicans, they always think, well, we have the solutions because we're Congress. Well, 
we need to come back to a federalist system that they stay out of it and say, you know, you guys really need to understand Memphis. What is best practices for your area? That's going to look a lot different than Boulder, Colorado, than Seattle, Washington, than, you know, Jacksonville, Florida. All of these things are going to look very different and tailored to that community. So I really appreciate that call, Dave. And again, thank you so much for your service um, in law enforcement. Let's go uh, to Shirley in Tennessee. You're one of um, our regular callers. Always really appreciate you calling in. Good morning, Shirley. Good morning. God bless you. I just wanted to share. My feeling on the issue is the biggest criminals are in Washington. They're in the White House. None of them have gone to jail. Not Fauci, not Pelosi, not Bill Gates and all his people are not in the White House. None of them. But we want to make life harder on our police officers. And that's where I disagree. The ones who do the crime, we should make it harder on them if a crime was actually done. Because I know drug dealers, drug addicts, they're very difficult to deal with. People don't even want to live with them. Families kick them out. And so what do they do? They lose their minds and go into the streets. So, yes, I'm with the officer who just called. I feel that, at least in my area especially, instead of trying to punish all the police, punish anybody who is going to go against the system and take George Soros' money so that they can sigh up us and get our attention off the fact that Hunter Biden and them have been stealing uh, and having uh, documents from uh, our American government in their garages and in their sports cars so that we pay attention to Memphis and not attention to the real issues at hand. Well, well said, Shirley. And, and I agree that there has to be one equal application of the law to everyone. And that shouldn't uh, be different if your last name is Trump versus your last name being Biden. And I think a lot of us are really frustrated that uh, there is so much attention to good law enforcement officers when there are a couple of bad apples in the system. And then, as Brett Tolman uh, suggested earlier, then, you know, the left just wants to defund the police rather than looking at a true meaningful reforms. And so I think we need, I think you're absolutely right that we need to look at everyone. We need to look at the act that was committed, regardless of whether you're Hunter Biden or you are in uniform. So uh, well said, always appreciate the calls. And if you want to call in in just the last few minutes, uh, the phone number is 888-589-8840. And uh, let's go to Marcy in Illinois. Good morning, Marcy. Good morning, Jenna. Uh, I'm coming at this from uh, the medical part. And uh, I have been um, the medical person in a county jail, which had federal people also housed in it. And I've also worked recently in a mental health institute uh, for the state. And we do not realize how much drugs and alcohol are paying a part of these people that are in jail. And uh, I do agree with the uh, person before who was talking about uh, the mental illness and uh, handling these people, they are superhuman when yeah, they're, well, they're bringing them down. And I have been at the jail when we've had to get them something, and it takes right. uh, Well said, Marcy. And I'm going to have to cut you off. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but I so appreciate um, everyone's perspectives. Thank you so much for calling in. And we do need meaningful criminal justice reform, and we need to look at this holistically. And that's why these conversations are so important to not just look at mainstream media, but the deeper issue from a biblical perspective. And that's what we're going to discuss here every day on Jenna Ellis in the morning. I'll see you tomorrow morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast 
may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.